Section 15 of the State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1909-1912. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address, William H. Taft, December 3, 1912. Part 2 Continued. Puerto Rico continues to show notable progress, both commercially and in the spread of education. Its external commerce has increased 17% over the preceding year, bringing the total value up to $92,631,886, or more than five times the value of the commerce of the island in 1901. During the year, 160,657 pupils were enrolled in the public schools, as against 145,525 for the preceding year, and as compared with the 26,000 for the first year of American administration. Special efforts are underway for the promotion of vocational and industrial training, the need of which is particularly pressing in the island. When the bubonic plague broke out last June, the quick and efficient response of the people of Puerto Rico to the demands of modern sanitation was strikingly shown by the thorough campaign which was instituted against the plague, and the hearty public opinion which supported the government's efforts to check its progress and to prevent its recurrence. The failure thus far to grant American citizenship continues to be the only ground of dissatisfaction. The bill conferring such citizenship has passed the House of Representatives and is now awaiting the action of the Senate. I am heartily in favor of the passage of this bill. I believe that the demand for citizenship is just, and that it is amply earned by sustained loyalty on the part of the inhabitants of the island. But it should be remembered that the demand must be, and in the minds of most Puerto Ricans is, entirely dissociated from any thought of statehood. I believe that no substantial approved public opinion in the United States or in Puerto Rico contemplates statehood for the island as the ultimate form of relations between us. I believe that the aim to be striven for is the fullest possible allowance of legal and fiscal self-government, with American citizenship as to the bond between us. In other words, a relation analogous to the present relation between Great Britain and such self-governing colonies as Canada and Australia. This would conduce to the fullest and most self-sustaining development of Puerto Rico, while at the same time it would grant her the economic and political benefit of being under the American flag. A bill is pending in Congress which revolutionizes the carefully worked-out scheme of government under which the Philippine Islands are now governed, and which proposes to render them virtually autonomous at once and absolutely independent in eight years. Such a proposal can only be founded on the assumption that we have now discharged our trusteeship of the Filipino people and our responsibility for them to the world, and that they are now prepared for self-government as well as national sovereignty. A thorough and unbiased knowledge of the facts clearly shows that these assumptions are absolutely without justification. As to this, I believe that there is no substantial difference of opinion among any of those who have had the responsibility of facing Philippine problems in the administration of the islands, 
and I believe that no one to whom the future of this people is a responsible concern can countenance a policy fraught with the direct consequences to those on whose behalf it is ostensibly urged. In the Philippine Islands, we have embarked upon an experiment unprecedented in dealing with dependent people. We are developing there conditions exclusively for their own welfare. We found an archipelago containing twenty-four tribes and races, speaking a great variety of languages, and with a population over eighty percent of which could neither read nor write. Through the unifying forces of a common education, of commercial and economic development, and of gradual participation in local self-government, we are endeavoring to evolve a homogeneous people fit to determine, when the time arrives, their own destiny. We are seeking to arouse a national spirit, and not, as under the older colonial theory, to suppress such a spirit. The character of the work we have been doing is keenly recognized in the Orient, and our success thus far, followed with not a little envy by those who, imitating the same policy, find themselves hampered by conditions grown up in earlier days and under different theories of administration. But our work is far from done. Our duty to the Filipinos is far from discharged. Over half a million Filipino students are now in the Philippine schools, helping to mold the men of the future into a homogeneous people. But there still remain more than a million Filipino children of school age yet to be reached. Freed from American control, the integrating forces of a common education and a common language will cease, and the educational system now well started will slip back into inefficiency and disorder. An enormous increase in the commercial development of the islands has been made, since they were virtually granted full access to our markets three years ago. With every prospect of increasing development and diversified industries. Freed from American control, such development is bound to decline. Every observer speaks of the great progress in public works for the benefit of the Filipinos, of harbor improvements, of roads and railways, of irrigation and artesian wells, public buildings, and better means of communication. But large parts of the island are still unreached, still even unexplored. Roads and railways are needed in many parts. Irrigation systems are still to be installed, and wells to be driven. Whole villages and towns are still without means of communication other than most impassable roads and trails. Even the great progress in sanitation, which has successfully suppressed smallpox, the bubonic plague, and Asiatic cholera, has found the cause of and a cure for beriberi, has segregated the lepers, has helped to make Manila the most healthful city in the Orient, and to free life throughout the whole archipelago from its former dread diseases, is nevertheless incomplete in many essentials of permanence in sanitary policy. Even more remains to be accomplished. If freed from American control, sanitary progress is bound to be arrested and all that has been achieved likely to be lost. Concurrent with the economic, social, and industrial developments of the islands has been the development of the political capacity of the people. By their progressive participation in government, the Filipinos are being steadily and hopefully trained for self-government. 
under Spanish control, they shared in no way in the government. Under American control, they have shared largely and increasingly. Within the last dozen years, they have gradually been given complete autonomy in the municipalities, the right to elect two-thirds of the provincial governing boards and the lower house of the insular legislature. They have four native members out of nine members of the commission or upper house. The chief justice and two justices of the Supreme Court, about one-half of the higher judicial positions, and all of the justices of the peace are natives. In the classified civil service, the proportion of Filipinos increased from 51% in 1904 to 67% in 1911. Thus, today, all the municipal employees, over 90% of the provincial employees, and 60% of the officials and employees of the central government are Filipinos. The ideal which has been kept in mind in our political guidance of the islands has been real popular self-government, and not mere paper independence. I am happy to say that the Filipinos have done well enough in the places they have filled and in the discharge of their political power which they have been entrusted to warrant the belief that they can be educated and trained to complete self-government. But the present satisfactory results are due to constant support and supervision at every step by Americans. If the task we have undertaken is higher than that assumed by other nations, its accomplishment must demand even more patience. We must not forget that we found the Filipinos wholly untrained in government. Up to our advent, all other experience sought to repress rather than encourage political power. It takes long time and much experience to ingrain political habits of steadiness and efficiency. Popular self-government ultimately rests upon common habits of thought and upon a reasonably developed public opinion. No such foundations for self-government, let alone independence, are now present in the Philippine Islands. Disregarding even their racial heterogeneity and the lack of ability to think as a nation, it is sufficient to point out that under liberal franchise privileges only about 3% of the Filipinos vote, and only about 5% of the people are said to read the public press. To confer independence upon the Filipinos now is therefore to subject the great mass of their people to the dominance of an oligarchical and probably exploiting minority. Such a course will be as cruel to those people as it would be shameful to us. Our true course is to pursue steadily and courageously the path we have thus far followed, to guide the Filipinos into self-sustaining pursuits, to continue the cultivation of sound political habits through education and political practice, to encourage the diversification of industries and to realize the advantages of their industrial education by conservatively approved cooperative methods, at once checking the dangers of concentrated wealth and building up a sturdy independent citizenship. We should do all this with a disinterested endeavor to secure for the Filipinos economic independence and to fit them for complete self-government with the power to decide eventually, according to their own largest good, whether such self-government shall be accompanied by independence. 
a present declaration even of future independence would retard progress by the dissension and disorder it would arouse. On our part, it would be a disingenuous attempt, under the guise of conferring a benefit on them, to relieve ourselves from the heavy and difficult burden which thus far we have been bravely and consistently sustaining. It would be a disguised policy of scuttle. It would make the helpless Filipino the football of Oriental politics under the protection of a guarantee of their independence, which we would be powerless to enforce. There are pending before Congress a large number of bills proposing to grant privileges of erecting dams for the purpose of creating water power in our navigable rivers. The pendency of these bills has brought out an important defect in the existing General Dam Act. The Act does not, in my opinion, grant sufficient power to the federal government in dealing with the construction of such dams to exact protective conditions in the interest of navigation. It does not permit the federal government, as a condition of its permit, to require that a part of the value thus created shall be applied to the further general improvement and protection of the stream. I believe this to be one of the most important matters of internal improvement now confronting the government. Most of the navigable rivers of this country are comparatively long and shallow. In order that they may be fully useful for navigation, there has come into vogue a method of improvement known as canalization, or the slackwater method, which consists in building a series of dams and locks, each of which will create a long pool of deep, navigable water. At each of these dams, there is usually created also water power of commercial value. If the water power thus created can be made available for the further improvement of navigation in the stream, it is manifest that the improvement will be much more quickly effected on the one hand, and on the other, that the burden of the general taxpayers of the country will be very much reduced. Private interests seeking permits to build water power dams in navigable streams usually urge that they thus improve navigation, and that if they do not impair navigation, they should be allowed to take for themselves the entire profits of the water power development. Whatever they may do by way of relieving the government of the expense of improving navigation should be given due consideration, but it must be apparent that there may be a profit beyond a reasonably liberal return upon the private investment, which is a potential asset of the government, in carrying out a comprehensive policy of waterway development. It is no objection to the retention and use of such an asset by the government that a comprehensive waterway policy will include the protection and development of the other public uses of water, which cannot and should not be ignored in making and executing plans for the protection and development of navigation. It is also equally clear that inasmuch as the water power thus created is or may be an incident of a general scheme of waterway improvement within the constitutional jurisdiction of the federal government, the regulation of such water power lies also within that jurisdiction. In my opinion, constructive statesmanship requires that legislation should be enacted which will permit the development of navigation in these great rivers, to go hand in hand with the utilization of this byproduct of water power, created in the course of the same improvement, and that the General Dam Act should be so amended as to make this possible. 
I deem it highly important that the nation should adopt a consistent and harmonious treatment of these water power projects, which will preserve for this purpose their value to the government, whose right it is to grant the permit. Any other policy is equivalent to throwing away a most valuable national asset. During the past year, the work of construction upon the canal has progressed most satisfactorily. About 87% of the excavation work has been completed, and more than 93% of the concrete for all the locks is in place. In view of the great interest which has been manifested as to some slides in the Colibera cut, I am glad to say that the report of Colonel Gothels should allay any apprehension on this point. It is gratifying to note that none of the slides which have occurred during this year would have interfered with the passage of the ships, had the canal in fact been in operation, and when the slope pressures will have been finally adjusted, and the growth of vegetation will minimize erosion in the banks of the cut, the slide problem will be practically solved, and an ample stability assured for the Colubera cut. Although the official date of the opening has been set for January 1, 1915, the canal will in fact, from present indications, be opened for shipping during the latter half of 1913. No fixed date can as yet be set, but shipping interests will be advised as soon as assurances can be given that vessels can pass through without unnecessary delay. Recognizing the administrative problem in the management of the canal, Congress in the Act of August 24, 1912 has made admirable provisions for executive responsibility in the control of the canal and the government of the canal zone. The problem of most efficient organization is receiving careful consideration, so that a scheme of organization and control best adapted to the conditions of the canal may be formulated and put in operation as expeditiously as possible. Acting under the authority conferred on me by Congress, I have, by executive proclamation, promulgated the following schedule of tolls for ships passing through the canal, based upon the thorough report of Emery R. Johnson, Special Commissioner on Traffic and Tolls. 1. On merchant vessels carrying passengers or cargo, $1.20 per net vessel ton each, 100 cubic feet, of actual earning capacity. 2. On vessels in ballast without passengers or cargo, 40% less than the rate of tolls for vessels with passengers or cargo. 3. Upon naval vessels, other than transports, colliers, hospital ships, and supply ships, 50 cents per displacement ton. 4. Upon army and navy transports, colliers, hospital ships, and supply ships, $1.20 per net ton, the vessels to be measured by the same rules as are employed in determining the net tonnage of merchant vessels. Rules for the determination of the tonnage upon which tolls charge are based are now in course of preparation and will be promulgated in due season. The proclamation which I have issued in respect to the Panama Canal tolls is in accord with the Panama Canal Act, passed by this Congress August 24, 1912. We have been advised that the British government has prepared a protest against the Act and its enforcement 
insofar as it relieves from the payment of tolls American ships engaged in the American coastwide trade on the ground that it violates British rights under the Hay Ponsforte Treaty concerning the Panama Canal. When the protest is presented, it will be promptly considered, and an effort made to reach a satisfactory adjustment of any differences there may be between the two governments. The promulgation of an efficient workmen's compensation act, adapted to the particular conditions of the zone, is awaiting adequate appropriation by Congress for the payment of claims arising thereunder. I urge that speedy provision be made, in order that we may install upon the zone a system of settling claims for injuries, in best accord with modern humane social and industrial theories. As the completion of the canal grows nearer, and as the wonderful executive work of Colonel Gothels becomes more conspicuous in the eyes of the country and of the world, it seems to me wise and proper to make provision by law for such reward to him as may be commensurate with that service that he has rendered to his country. I suggest that this reward take the form of an appointment of Colonel Gothels as a major general in the Army of the United States, and that the law authorizing such appointment be accompanied with a provision permitting his designation as Chief of Engineers upon the retirement of the present incumbent of that office. The Navy of the United States is in a greater state of efficiency and is more powerful than it has ever been before. But in the emulation which exists between different countries in respect to the increase of naval and military armaments, this condition is not a permanent one. In view of the many improvements and increases by foreign governments, the slightest halt on our part in respect to new construction throws us back and reduces us from a naval power of the first rank and places us among the nations of the second rank. In the past 15 years, the Navy has expanded rapidly, and yet far less rapidly than our country. From now on, reduced expenditures in the Navy means reduced military strength. The world's history has shown the importance of sea power, both for adequate defense and for the support of important and definite policies. I had the pleasure of attending this autumn a mobilization of the Atlantic fleet, and was glad to observe and note the preparedness of the fleet for instant action. The review brought before the President and the Secretary of the Navy a greater and more powerful collection of vessels than had ever been gathered in American waters. The condition of the fleet, and of the officers, and enlisted men, and of the equipment of the vessels, entitled those in authority to the greatest credit. I again commend to Congress the giving of legislative sanction to the appointment of the naval aides to the Secretary of the Navy. These aides, and the Council of Aides appointed by the Secretary of the Navy to assist him in the conduct of his department, have proven to be of the highest utility. They have furnished an executive committee of the most skilled naval experts who have coordinated the action of the various bureaus in the Navy and, by their advice, have enabled the Secretary to give it administration at the same time economical and most efficient. 
Never before has the United States had a navy that compared in efficiency with its present one. But never before have the requirements with respect to naval warfare been higher and more exacting than now. A year ago, Congress refused to appropriate for more than one battleship. In this, I think a great mistake of policy was made, and I urgently recommend that this Congress make up for the mistake of the last session by appropriations authorizing the construction of three battleships, in addition to destroyers, fuel ships, and the other auxiliary vessels as shown in the building program of the General Board. We are confronted by a condition in respect to the navies of the world which requires us, if we would maintain our navy as an insurance of peace, to augment our naval force by at least two battleships a year, and by battle cruisers, gunboats, torpedo destroyers, and submarine boats in a proper proportion. We have no desire for war. We would go as far as any nation in the world to avoid war, but we are a world power. Our population, our wealth, our definite policies, our responsibilities in the Pacific and the Atlantic, our defense of the Panama Canal, together with our enormous world trade, and our missionary outposts on the frontiers of civilization, require us to recognize our position as one of the foremost in the family of nations, and to clothe ourselves with sufficient naval power to give force to our reasonable demands, and to give weight to our influence in those directions of progress that a powerful Christian nation should advocate. I observe that the Secretary of the Navy devotes some space to a change in the disciplinary system in vogue in that branch of the service. I think there is nothing quite unsatisfactory to either the Army or the Navy as the severe punishments necessarily inflicted by court-martial for desertions and purely military offenses, and I am glad to hear that the British have solved this important and difficult matter in a satisfactory way. I commend to the consideration of Congress the details of the new disciplinary system, and recommend that laws be passed putting the same into force both in the Army and the Navy. I invite the attention of Congress to that part of the report of the Secretary of the Navy in which he recommends the formation of a naval reserve by the organization of the ex-sailors of the Navy. I repeat my recommendation made last year, that proper provision should be made for the rank of the commander-in-chief of the squadrons and fleets of the Navy. The inconvenience attending the necessary precedence that most foreign admirals have over our own whenever they meet in official functions ought to be avoided. It impairs the prestige of our Navy, and is a defect that can be very easily removed. Department of Justice This department has been very active in the enforcement of the law. It has been better organized and with a larger force than ever before in the history of the government. The prosecutions which have been successfully concluded and which are now pending testify to the effectiveness of the departmental work. The prosecution of trusts under the Sherman Antitrust Law has gone on without restraint or diminution, 
and decrees similar to those entered in the standard oil and the tobacco cases have been entered in other suits, like the suits against the powder trust and the bathtub trust. I am very strongly convinced that a steady, consistent course in this regard, with a continuing of Supreme Court decisions upon new phases of the trust question, not already finally decided, is going to offer a solution of this much-discussed and troublesome issue in a quiet, calm, and judicial way, without any radical legislation changing the governmental policy in regard to combinations now denounced by the Sherman Antitrust Law. I have already recommended, as an aid in this matter, legislation which would declare unlawful certain well-known phases of unfair competition in interstate trade, and I have also advocated voluntary national incorporation for the larger industrial enterprises, with provision for a closer supervision by the Bureau of Corporations, or a board appointed for that purpose, so as to make more certain compliance with the antitrust law on the one hand, and to give greater security to the stockholders against possible prosecutions on the other. I believe, however, that the orderly course of litigation in the courts and the regular prosecution of trusts charged with the violation of the antitrust law is producing among businessmen a clearer and clearer perception of the line of distinction between business that is to be encouraged and business that is to be condemned, and that in this quiet way the question of trusts can be settled and competition retained as an economic force to secure reasonableness in prices and freedom and independence in trade. I am glad to bring to the attention of Congress the fact that the Supreme Court has radically altered the equity rules governing the procedure on the equity side of all federal courts, and those these changes have not been yet put in practice so as to enable us to state from actual results what the reform will accomplish, they are of such a character that we can reasonably prophesy that they will greatly reduce the time and cost of litigation in such courts. The court has adopted many of the shorter methods of the present English procedure, and while it may take a little while for the profession to accustom itself to these methods, it is certain greatly to facilitate litigation. The action of the Supreme Court has been so drastic and so full of appreciation of the necessity for a great reform in court procedure that I have no hesitation in following up this action with a recommendation, which I foreshadowed in my message of three years ago, that the sections of the statute governing the procedure in the federal courts on the common law side should be so amended as to give to the Supreme Court the same right to make rules of procedure in common law as they have since the beginning of the court exercised in equity. I do not doubt that a full consideration of the subject will enable the court, while giving effect to the substantial differences in right and remedy between the system of common law and the system of equity, so to unite the two procedures into the form of one civil action and to shorten the procedure in such civil action as to furnish a model to all the state courts exercising current jurisdiction with the federal courts of first insistence. But, under the statute now in force, the common law procedure in each federal court is made to conform to the procedure in the state in which the court is held. In these days, when we should be making progress in court procedure, 
such a conformity statute makes the federal method too dependent upon the action of state legislatures. I can but think it a great opportunity for Congress to entrust to the highest tribunal in this country, evidently imbued with a strong spirit in favor of a reform of procedure, the power to frame a model code of procedure, which, while preserving all that is valuable and necessary of the rights and remedies at common law and in equity, shall lessen the burden of the poor litigant to a minimum in the expedition and cheapness with which his cause can be fought or defended through federal courts to final judgment. The Workmen's Compensation Act, reported by the Special Commission appointed by Congress and the Executive, which passed the Senate and is now pending in the House, the passage of which I have in previous messages urged upon Congress, I venture again to call to its attention. The opposition to it, which developed in the Senate, but which was overcome by a majority in that body, seemed to me to grow out rather of a misapprehension of its effect than of opposition to its principle. I say again that I think no act can have a better effect directly upon the relations between the employer and employee than this act applying to railroads and common carriers of an interstate character. And I am sure that the passage of the act would greatly relieve the courts of the heaviest burden of litigation that they have, and would enable them to dispatch other businesses with a speed never before attained in courts of justice in this country. End of section 15.